The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 67, from beginning to end, concerns an encounter with a hill giant the creature has made its lair in the very cavern the party needs to move through if they hope to ascend the Igrigen from the relative safety of the mountain's interior. That's relative safety, not actual safety. The mountain is full of hazards that no sane person would risk unless the alternative was much worse, which in this case, it is. Fighting a flying dragon while clinging to a mountainside is not a good plan for anything but a quick trip to the afterlife. Getting past this giant will hopefully get the companions into the mountain's interior Actually, that is yet to be seen. But before they can get past it and find out, they will first need to find a way to get near it. Atop a 60-foot high ledge, among the ruins of a dwarven guard tower, the giant has a big advantage over any intruders. It can hurl bricks and chunks of masonry from above and for a long time before anyone can reach it. At the same time, it has decent cover from enemy missile fire. Umura sets in motion a plan that fails spectacularly. She sacrifices her scroll of protection from normal missiles and uses herself as a decoy, swinging her lamp and yelling at the giant in an attempt to draw fire while the melee fighters rush the monster's position. But she has not fully understood the spell that she has cast and finds out the hard way that it does not work against projectiles as large as these. She is struck once, then again, and as she stubbornly remains in plain view a third time before Eridine dashes out and yanks her back behind cover. Gyrios and the two dwarves have made it partway up the stairs by now, but their progress has almost cost Umura her life. They endure a hail of rubble before they reach the top and, after an intense but short battle, manage to force the creature back to the edge where it slips and falls off. Gravity does the rest of the work, ending the encounter and leaving the companions to lick their wounds. Chapter 68 Part 1. Day 98. Early evening. Party status. Harl. 28 of 34 hit points. Gyrios. 22 of 37. Eridine. 20 of 20. Umura. 12 of 25, having been healed by Gyrios for 10 hit points with two cure light wounds spells. Roland Daz. 17 of 17. Spells available. Umura has memorized. Hold portal. Charm person. Levitate. Knock. Lightning bolt. And water breathing. 
Gyrios has prayed for, resist fire, speak with animals, strike it, and create water. The door was easy enough to see, but getting through it was a slightly more difficult matter. Several hours of work were required for Harl and Daz to move enough rubble to allow it to be opened. It was just as well, Umura needed the time to rest. While Eredin crouched in front of the door, inspecting it for traps, Harl finished clearing away the last of the loose rubble and then walked down to the cavern floor, saying he wished to check on Umura. Daz followed him down the stairs, but instead of moving toward the giant stalagmite, he went the other way, in order to examine the giant's body. He had no doubt that it was dead. They had watched it for signs of movement from above for some time before they began clearing the door. No, Daz simply wanted to get a look at the thing up close. Like Harl, he had never fought a giant before today. When he returned to the ledge top, Eredin, with Umura's lamp at her side, was just finishing her inspection of the door. She waved a hand and shook her head, indicating that she had not found any traps. Well, that's good news, said Daz. Oh, here, I managed to retrieve these. They are very well made. Daz passed Eredin two elven arrows that he had pulled from the giant's corpse. The other one broke in the fall. Eredin nodded her thanks and replaced the bloodstained arrows in her quiver. The top of Harl's head appeared at the staircase, and then the dwarf was walking their way. Try the door, he said as he arrived. Daz kicked a stray piece of debris out of the way and yanked on it. It didn't budge. Stuck, he said. Eredin shook her head and pointed at the keyhole with a wry smile. Locked. Oh, for the love of gold, complained Harl. I had hoped to be halfway up the mountain by now. Perhaps we can find a key in all this mess, suggested Daz, waving his hand vaguely at the ruined tower. But there was nothing significant to find here. No skeletons, no weapons left behind by the guards who once patrolled the place. Some of the old equipment had been taken away. Anything else had been claimed by the passage of almost nine centuries. There won't be any key. Look, it's clear that no guards remained here after the door was locked. <clears throat> they either all went back inside or they all left. Do you think Blacknail let his people out by this door? Daz asked reverently. I don't know. Unlikely, but anything's possible, I suppose. By now, Eredin had reopened her wallet containing her thieves' tools and was working intently on the lock. Eredin failed her roll when checking for traps, but it doesn't matter. There are no traps to be found, not here anyway. The dwarves who built this tower must have thought the structure on its own was plenty by way of defense and did not see the need for more. Our rogue now has a little experience with dwarven locks, having worked on one in Grithwip's secret work area. I wonder if she might succeed this time. She has a 45% chance to pick this lock. I've got a 25. Oh, I see Gyrios is bringing Umura, said Harl, looking down from the ledge and seeing the limping sorceress. She was supporting herself on the cleric's shoulder, ascending the stairs slowly. Eredin, perhaps she might be able to... Eredin looked over her shoulder at the dwarf, her eyebrows raised in question. Never mind. The young rogue stood straight up and stretched. She had been in the same position for half an hour, and her muscles were stiff. As Umura and Gyrios crested the rise, Daz swallowed hard. The sorceress's small white dress, visible under her cloak, was stained dark red with blood. Are you... are you going to be alright? He asked, thinking of the potion of healing in his pouch. Thanks to Gyrios, I'll live, she replied. Harl, open the door. 
Chapter 68 Part 2 Day 98 Early Evening Party Status The party status is unchanged. Beyond the door, they had found a featureless hallway, and they'd taken it, letting the door swing shut behind them. That had been three hours ago. Since then, there had been nothing to interrupt the uniform monotony of their passage. No doors, no intersections, nothing. The lack of change gave the impression that time had somehow stopped working here. Daz pointed out that they had been on a slight incline the whole way, and that the passage curved minutely to the left. Both observations were correct, and perhaps if they had a light that was bright enough, they would have been obvious to the humans as well. Eridine did not expect the Egogen to offer many pleasant surprises, but she was almost relieved when she saw, up ahead, the hallway finally coming to an end. But it wasn't a dead end. The wall facing them featured a set of rusted iron rungs that led up into a shaft and out of sight. Gyrios looked at them doubtfully. These are badly rusted. Do you think they'll hold? Harl put a gauntleted hand on the closest one and tried to wrench it downward. It didn't budge. Looks pretty good to me, he replied. The Egogenites were the best builders the world has ever known. Gyrios was ready to protest, but Eridine gently pushed him out of the way and began climbing. A few rusted flakes came floating down after her, but the iron rungs held. After a few minutes, they could hear a muffled banging from up above. Umura was holding her lantern and shining it up into the shaft, but the light did not reach to the top. Eridine had been swallowed by the darkness. After another few minutes, she reappeared as she quickly descended and, presently, was with them once again. In her throaty alto, she told them that the ladder went about 100 feet up before terminating at a trap door. Unfortunately, it was barred on the other side. The best lockpicker in the world wouldn't be able to get them past this door. True, but there are other ways offered Umura. She attached the lantern to her belt and began climbing. Once again, they waited until they heard the eventual sound of muffled banging. This time, after a little pause, there also came a scraping sound. At Umura's whistle, they climbed the ladder, one by one. Daz came last. He ascended into a chamber, 40 by 40 feet square, with cobblestone walls and floor, and the trap door in the middle. There were some empty barrels and crates that might once have held water and sundry supplies. Clearly, this had been a storage room. A single stone door offered the only other exit. He saw that, as Eredin had guessed, the trapdoor had been barred, but somehow the bar had been removed. How did you... Umora gave a weak smile in return. This one is full of surprises, said Harl. And I suppose we now know for sure that the Aegogenites did not leave this way. How does that door look, Eredin? Eredin nodded put her tools away and stood to the side while Harl approached the door and gave it a push. This one was heavy, but unlocked. It opened without too much difficulty. As soon as it was, a cool gust of air entered the chamber carrying the scent of water. It made a low moaning sound as it traveled down another long and straight corridor, much like the previous one. Because it would be too narrow to walk two abreast, they took the following order. Harl first, then Daz, followed by Umura, now holding her lantern in her hands then Eridine, with Gyrios bringing up the rear. Minutes went by as they walked. The air grew cold, then damp, too. After a time, the walls became glossy with moisture, and lichens could be seen growing on the walls and ceiling. Just a few at first, but then more and more until they covered half the stone surface. 
Now there was a constant hissing sound coming from up ahead. Eridine shivered involuntarily, and Garios put a hand on her shoulder. The hall opened into a huge, empty space at a ledge that ringed half the circumference of a deep, deep chasm in a semicircle. By now, what had begun as a hissing sound had become a full roar. The source of it was right before their eyes, and it was spectacular. Mazagos breath, intoned Gyrios. I had no idea things like this even existed. Yes, it is. Most impressive. Most impressive indeed, Gyrios. Harl agreed, without taking his eyes off it. The five of them were staring, goggle-eyed, at a massive subterranean waterfall that began some two hundred feet above them and fell a similar distance into the chasm below, which was filled with clouds and tendrils of cool, spiraling mist. You can feel the sheer power of the water, Umura commented. She had replaced the lantern on her belt and was looking up at the cataract source with her fingers steepled under her chin. An onlooker might have thought she was praying. Although the ledge was slick and narrow, by moving slowly and in single file, they managed to navigate it to where it disappeared behind the thundering fall of water. Here, previously hidden from view, they found another problem. A small portcullis, sized for a dwarf and closed, marked the place where the ledge ended. But a potential solution was here too. A large slot, two feet wide, ten feet tall and deep, had been cut into the cavern wall. Inside it was what looked like a water wheel. On each side, an axle rested perfectly in a divot in an upward-sloping groove. Hanging out the bottom of the slot and coiled in a heap on the ledge was a chain that Harl knew was made of copper, not iron. He could tell by the green patina. Iron would have showed rust. A similar chain, twice as thick, banded the protruding flanges of the water wheel, with each link fitted into a kind of peg. There was a lever attached to the stone right behind the slot, just to the left. Harl had to yell to be heard over the roar of the falling water. This lever will release the wheel! Is that really a good idea? Gyrios shouted back. Harl pointed at the heavy portcullis. Even with Daz's help, there was no way they would be able to lift it. It's my only idea! Everyone, get on this side! The companions all shuffled the portcullis side of the apparatus. Harl pulled the lever. It resisted at first, enough that he feared the passing centuries might have welded it in position. But with a little extra effort, it grated into the down position. There was a loud click, loud enough to be heard over the waterfall, and then a rumble as the thick wheel slid down its track, vibrating the very wall as it came. It stopped abruptly where the track ended and instantly engaged with the pounding water from above, turning and gaining speed. Now it was spinning as quickly as the wheel of a horse-drawn cart, which was impressive given its size and weight, and adding new sounds to the white noise of the waterfall. The chain that had been piled on the ledge was drawn up now so that only the tail end protruded from the slot. This must be how the wheel was retracted, thought Harl. He was glad that all he had needed to do was pull the lever. It would take a full team of strong dwarves to pull this wheel back out of the water, no matter how many pulleys were in play inside and out of sight. The vibrations in the wheel did not go away once the wheel had fully engaged. They grew stronger, and now the whole cavern thrummed like a titanic beehive. From deep inside the mountain, coming from beyond the portcullis, came a variety of reverberant and low-pitched mechanical sounds. Clicks, ratcheting noises, moving chains, and clanging metal. Suddenly, the portcullis began to rise on its own. Ha! exclaimed Harl in triumph. It worked! Let's go! Daz went first, disappearing into the darkness beyond the metal gate. 
Umura, removing the lamp from her belt once again, followed. Then Eredin and Gyrios went in. The three humans had to duck when they entered. Harl came last. Nobody saw, but he was smiling, ear to ear. you take five newbies to D&D and put them in an actual player podcast? Chaos, that's what. Do Dragon's Dreams Scorch Sheep tells a tale of a group of adventurers fighting against impossible odds in a situation they don't quite understand, using tools they really shouldn't be allowed to use unsupervised? Join us as they battle monsters, despots, criminals, and their own dice, while they forge a path through the world of Erethria. We have drama, we have comedy, we have characters throwing bears, we even sing a song or two. Do Dragon's Dream of Scorch Sheep is available everywhere you can find podcasts. friends, it's 2022 and most of us like to keep to ourselves, right? But have you ever thought what may be going on next door? What's with the Neighbors is a true crime and paranormal podcast with a hint of neighborhood drama. Tune in every Sunday with Bree and Amy and all things spooky wherever you get your podcast. And check us out on all social media platforms at WWTN Podcast. That's What's with the Neighbors on all streaming platforms and at WWTN Podcast. Have you checked in on the Neighbors? What's with the Neighbors? Dramatis Personae, Harl Stonecarver. Six years ago. Why have we not gone there to save what we can? At 32 years of age, Harl was in his final year of formal schooling. After just a few more lessons, he would be expected to take up the responsibilities of adulthood in one form or another, and to contribute to the prosperity of Dwervar. His teacher was one of the eldest members of the Hold. Grillican Sharp Chisel had a wizened face, complemented by a curly white beard that hung down past his knees. He eschewed armor in favor of a simple cloth robe cinched at the waist with a goatskin belt. Grillican's most notable features were his eyes. Brown and flecked with yellow, they twinkled like garnets. The joyful crow's feet at the edges gave him an air of perpetual mirth, which, by and large, was not inaccurate. Well, why don't you tell me? returned the teacher. This was a strategy common among all his instructors. Harl considered for a moment before replying. The distance? He guessed. That's part of it. Think of all the maps you have studied. How long do you think it would take to reach the Agogen? Three weeks, suggested Harl, this time without any meaningful reflection. Is that all? Asked Grillikin. He was wearing a particular smile that, Harl knew, denoted patience, not pleasure. Perhaps it is as much as a month, Harl said weakly. At least a month, his teacher corrected. And as much time traveling over lands that are wild, unsafe, and not well known. I do not fear the wilds, Harl boasted. Perhaps you should, countered Grillikin. Still, I admire your courage, Master Stonecarver. It's one of your better qualities. He paused and scratched under his beard thoughtfully. I wonder, is your knowledge of maps one of your worst? Harl was not especially adept at cartography and his memory was average at best. What lies between here and Cloudspur? Harl knew the answer to this question. He replied without hesitation. Sangar. Well, at least you got that one quickly enough. And what can you tell me of Thangar? Harl knew little about the place. Reading histories was uninteresting to him compared to living real experiences. 
He did have a healthy academic curiosity, but it was more for the culture of men than it was for the history of his own race. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> I regret, I cannot recall very much. It was founded by one of the three champions, not Blacknail, obviously. Correct, not Blackmail. It was founded by Varen Elamore. Do you think that you shall ever visit Thangar, Harl? Harl shrugged. I doubt it, he replied simply. And why is that? It's far from here, difficult to reach, and I have little reason to go there. Well, I think you have answered your original question on your own then. The Agogen is even farther away, even harder to reach, and it is unlikely that Blacknail left behind anything worth finding. Why would he? I just thought that I was just surprised that nobody had gone there to find out. At the top of the Cloudspur, where the fortress once stood, there is only ruin. The Fire Lizard saw to that. Much of what remains is a maze of broken rubble. That is what it says in Blacknail's own account. I understand, said Harl, hoping the lesson was drawing to a close. He would rather be sparring, or perhaps sleeping. Grillican Sharp Chisel's garnet-colored eyes clouded as the old dwarf became lost in thought. What a shame it is, he muttered that the greatest achievement of dwarven ingenuity and effort you and I will never see. Chapter 68, Part 3 Day 98, Early Evening Party Status the party status is unchanged, with the exception of Umura, who has used her spell of knock. Girios, Umura, and Eridine were all privately grateful that the height of the hall ceiling did not match the size of the portcullis. Although it was still too narrow to walk two abreast, at least there was enough headroom that they did not have to crouch. This passage was like a mirror image of the last one, with thick lichen growth near the waterfall end that gradually thinned out as the companions moved further into the mountain. After twenty-odd minutes, the walls were bare and everything was monotonous as it had been before. By the same token, the hall seemed as straight as an arrow to the three humans. Daz and Harl assured them that it curved slightly and had a noticeable incline. They walked in silence for another hour or so. Umora figured they must have covered two or three miles before Harl called them to a halt. He told them, somewhat apologetically, that a thought had entered his brain and he could not rid himself of it. He explained that his mind had wandered to the memory of the burnt marks left by the exploding glyphs in Blacknail's vault. That had been in a passage not unlike this one. Given that they were essentially in a service tunnel, he thought it unlikely for there to be any traps. But the idea had become a burr in his mind, and he decided to call a halt every 15 minutes so he and Daz could check for traps. They found none on their first check, none on their second, and still nothing on the third. But during this last check, while the two dwarves were scanning the floor, Eridine put a hand to her ear to indicate she heard something. There had been noises the whole time they had been walking. At first, the sound of the waterfall and the water wheel that grew dimmer as they penetrated deeper into the mountain. Those sounds had been replaced by an increasing volume of mechanical noises of all kinds. Eridine shook her head when Harl asked if it was possibly just some new metallic thump or knell. She motioned for them to all be still while she concentrated, trying to sort out the new sound from the others. 
Although I rolled for the dwarves three checks as they looked for traps, I really needn't have. There were no traps to be found. Not here, at any rate. Their reasoning that trapping a service tunnel did not make much sense was correct. As for Aradine, she would swear she heard something that didn't fit here, and she is rarely mistaken. Let's see if she can figure out what it is that she has perceived. Her thief's special hear noise skill will be successful on a roll of 1 to 3 on a d6. The roll. Okay, I've got a 6. Aradine shook her head and chewed her lip in frustration. Eventually, she gave up. She reiterated that she was sure there was something making noises ahead that did not belong with the other sounds, but she just couldn't make it out. Perhaps I should use the owl, Umura offered. If there's anything malevolent up ahead, it would be better to know in advance. But you can only call it its power once per day, isn't that right? Asked Harl, shaking his head. I think you ought to save it for when we are further up the mountain. It is unlikely there's anything actually evil down here. We are more likely to encounter traps than anything alive. And if there is anything alive down here, it is probably... Harl appeared to be choosing his words. He had been about to say an insect, but thought better of it. Non-intelligent. Umura, surprising everyone, offered no resistance. She just nodded, moving her hand away from her belt pouch. Yes, yes, that makes sense. Of course, it would be wise to proceed with caution. Daz and I will continue to look for traps every so often. Perhaps when we are closer to the source. Eridine, you might try to listen again. The rogue nodded absently, with a troubled look in her green eyes. They walked for another 45 minutes, prudently stopping every 15. Eridine continued hearing that odd sound, but it took ages before she was sure what it was, and when she realized, she could hardly believe her ears. It was the sound of a very deep male voice, singing. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now four ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, available for a buck fifty on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone who supports the show. I'd like to read a review from iTunes today. This one was posted by Space Princess Shannon. Shannon writes, A very enjoyable story and adventure. Really captures the magic and excitement of playing old-school role-playing games. Appreciate that very kind review, Shannon. It's funny. One of my goals in making the show is to recapture my youth, but, you know, my games as a kid didn't much resemble Tale of the Manticore. I guess this podcast is a hybrid in more ways than one. Let's talk about this episode's great voice talent. Returning as Daz is Jared Grimm. Find Jared on Twitter at CrazyDrunkenElf. Playing Professor Grillican Sharpchisel is Professor Dungeon Master of the popular Dungeon Craft YouTube channel. I'll bet some of you clocked him already. I'm a big fan of Dungeon Craft, so I was really thrilled when the professor agreed to do a voice. Thanks, Prof. For those of you who use socials, you can find me on Twitter at ManticoreTale, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. 
I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. My name is Ruin Ortega, one of the hosts of Cantrips and Coffee. We love tabletop games. We love them so much that we can't stop talking about them or playing them. The trouble is that there's so many to choose from. Now, we could stop and just play the big one, you know, the one that everybody plays, but life is meant for more than just one game for the rest of our lives, isn't it? That's why we're determined to play the best ones. We want to know which are worth our money and which we should probably just skip. Am I close enough to any of the other survivors to reach someone's, like, leg? Yes. Can I crush that person's leg? Yes! Okay, let's... Carl is suddenly looking for a new mentor to be sidekick to. <laughs> this isn't surprising. When you first did it, I was like, yeah, we got this. Like, we've just been too timid. We have been too scared to touch anything. Like, he's gonna go through, it's gonna be good. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> Join us for brand new episodes weekly on Cantrips and Coffee.